Mr. Chairman, my dear brethren and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our last class, as the brother Adrian has reminded us, we consider the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ in the town of Bethlehem. We had previously seen how it was the providence of God that brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem at that particular time. They had formerly been residing in the town of Nazareth to the north. But due to the decree of Caesar Augustus, they were compelled to travel south to Bethlehem for, for the uh, census that was being conducted at that time. It seems that having arrived at Bethlehem, Joseph and Mary took up residence there. They did not immediately return to Nazareth. In fact, it appears from the scriptural record that they didn't really intend to return to Nazareth. They intended to dwell at Bethlehem. In the second chapter of the book of Matthew and uh, verse 11 we learn that by the time the uh, wise men or the Magi visited uh, the Lord Jesus Christ we find that Joseph and Mary were living in a house at Bethlehem. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11 And when they were come into the house they saw, where the, young they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And that was some while after his birth, as we shall see when we come to consider that section of scripture. But Joseph and Mary are residing in a more permanent and settled manner in the town of Bethlehem. Probably they only remained in the uh, makeshift uh, residence of the stable at the inn for a short period of time. Very soon after the Lord's birth, and the, uh, the completion of the census, the crowds from Bethlehem would disperse back to the various parts of the land from which they had come. And Joseph and Mary then would be able to find a more comfortable and settled place to dwell in the town of Bethlehem. And there they dwelt for some time. Now we, in verses 21 to 24, of Luke chapter 2 we read of events that took place in the very early life of the Lord Jesus Christ we read in verse 21 and when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child his name was called Jesus which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb and when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written, in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now whether or not Mary, at the time that these things are enacted, fully appreciated the significance of those events there is no doubt whether she did appreciate it at that time or not may be doubtful. But there is no doubt that later in her life as she pondered those events and related, to them, related them to the circumstances of her son's life and sacrificial death there is not a shadow of a doubt that she would have come to see the tremendous beauty that there is revealed in these aspects of the, the law of Yahweh. And I believe in those enactments that took place in those first six weeks of the Lord's life we are shown much concerning the manner of person the Lord Jesus Christ would be. We are shown much of his life, of his sacrificial death and of that which was to be accomplished through those very things. And there in this um, typical way these things were presented before Joseph and Mary at, in these very early days of the Lord's life. Coming then to examine those verses a little more closely, we read at the beginning of verse 21, when eight days were accomplished. We're immediately in introduced to the eighth day of the Lord's life. <coughs> He'd been born in the stable uh, a week and a day previously. And upon the eighth day now, certain things had to be done in accordance with the law of Yahweh. Now the number eight is, beginning, is interesting. 
But number eight signifies a new beginning. You see, there's seven days in a week, and the eighth day is the first day of the next week. It speaks of a new beginning. So the eighth day is the new beginning of another week. The eighth day is presented to us as a day of great significance in the Word of God. We learn from this verse that upon the eighth day a newborn boy had to be circumcised. We look at other aspects of the use of the eighth day in the Word of God. We go to the Passover feast. We find that the feast of unleavened bread was kept for seven days. Upon the eighth day was the offering of the first fruit. We go to the Feast of Tabernacles. We learn in Leviticus 23 and verse 36 that the Feast of Tabernacles was observed for seven days and upon the eighth day of the Holy Convocation and special sacrifices were offered upon that day. When we go back to the consecration of Aaron and his sons, we find that the ceremony lasted for seven days and upon the eighth day they entered into their office. We find that the Lord Jesus Christ himself, when he rose from the dead, rose upon the eighth day. We say the eighth day, not that he was eight days in the tomb, of course, he was only three days in the tomb. But you will recall that he rose upon the first day of the week, which was really the eighth day of the preceding week. It was the eighth day, the start of a new beginning. It was upon that day that he rose from the dead. You know, we go back to Scripture and the number eight repeatedly presents itself before us. There were eight souls saved in the ark from the flood. Eight people saved out of the previous civilization, saved through the flood to commence a new beginning in a cleansed earth. We go to the man Abraham. We learn that he had eight sons. King David was the eighth son of Jesse. And so we see that eight is repeatedly used. It's a number that signifies a new beginning. You know, when we come to the pages of the New Testament, you know that in the the, uh, the Greek, the numeric value of the name Jesus is 888. And it has been claimed, I haven't checked it myself, but it has been claimed that in the original Greek scriptures, the name Jesus appears 888 times. So you see the number eight is inseparably associated with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in the Hebrew, the word for eight is a word which comes from a root which means to be fat. It speaks of prosperity or superabundance. And you see that eighth day points forward to the completion of God's purpose at the end of the millennium when a new beginning will be made, when flesh will be completely cut off, and an immortal community of people upon this earth will rejoice in special blessings that that the God of heaven showers upon them. They will be made fat. They will be prosperous. There will be a superabundance of blessings upon them at that time. And you know, on the eighth day of their life, all Jewish boys receives a mark in their flesh to remind them of those things. To remind them that they were to look forward to that eighth day when the purpose of God would be accomplished and, bless- and, and uh, uh, blessings would be poured about, poured out upon an immortal race of human beings. But you see, we come now more particularly to look upon that mark in the flesh that the Lord Jesus Christ received upon the eighth day of his life. Why was the Lord Jesus Christ circumcised? Well, I'd like to draw your attention to the statement of Brother Robert Roberts in Nazareth Revisited that we've reproduced upon the sheet that was given to you. And Brother Roberts there on page 60 of Nazareth Revisited asks that very question. He says, why should Christ the Lord be circumcised? And he answers that question because he was the seed of Abraham and of David according to the flesh. But why should that be reason for his circumcision? Because it had pleased God in carrying out his purpose toward the house of Israel, not yet fully accomplished, as the sign of that covenant in all their generations. 
<coughs> sorry, I left the, I'm misreading a piece there. Uh, he purposed for the house of Israel, uh, not yet fully accomplished, to proceed by covenant and to appoint circumcision as the sign of that covenant in all their generations. Any descendant of Abraham neglecting circumcision was outside the covenant, as God told Abraham, and would be cut off from Yahweh's regard. Jesus was a descendant of Abraham, and in a preeminent sense, the seed of Abraham, whose special mission it was to confirm or make sure the promises made under the Father. For circumcision to have been admitted in his case, therefore, would have been for the covenant to have been broken in his most essential application. But this failure was not possible. Therefore, the child Jesus was circumcised. And so Brother Robert points out to us the necessity for the Lord Jesus to be circumcised because he was the seed of Abraham. He was born into that covenant nation and he was born under the terms of that covenant. So it was necessary that he be circumcised. You know, in all probability, he's the only person really who has been truly circumcised. The only person really who has met all the requirements of that covenant. But nevertheless, he was circumcised upon the eighth day of his life. In all probability, that circumcision was carried out in the house of Bethlehem in which Joseph and Mary were residing. There was no demand under the law that a child had to be taken to the temple. The circumcision was nearly carried out in the most convenient place available. And so there's nothing here to indicate that the Lord Jesus Christ was taken to Jerusalem to the temple to be circumcised uh, at this time. In all probability the circumcision took place at Bethlehem in the house where Joseph and Mary were uh, residing. The mark that the Lord Jesus Christ received in his flesh in, in that circumcision was the token of the Abrahamic covenant. When we go back to Genesis chapter 17 and verse 10 we read of that law that every descendant of Abraham according to the flesh must be circumcised. <coughs> Genesis chapter 17 and verse 10 This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after me. Every man child among you shall be circumcised and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be a token of the covenant between me and you. He that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man child in your generation. He that is born in the house or brought with money of any stranger which is not thy seed. He that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man-child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Hence the need for the Lord Jesus Christ to be circumcised. So we look a little and ponder over the sign, the token of that covenant that Yahweh appointed. It was a sign or a token that was essentially personal. It was personal between the individual and Yahweh. The lessons of circumcision were not outwardly proclaimed to others. In fact, others would probably never know. It was essentially a personal thing for the individual, a token to him that he was in covenant relationship with his God. And so you see, the, the, the act of circumcision conduct, uh, performed upon a helpless babe such as the Lord Jesus Christ at eight days old, was something that in later life was to be a sign to him. It was to be a token to him, a reminder that he was in covenant relationship with his God and a reminder of the terms of that covenant that Yahweh had drawn him into. Circumcision was essentially the cutting off of flesh. 
There's a cutting off of part of the flesh of the body. And in the cutting off of that flesh, it inflicted pain. Pain was inflicted when that operation was performed. You know, you can't cut off flesh without pain being inflicted. You know, in later times, when the young child Jesus grew to an old, old enough age to realise what had been done to him when he was eight days old, and to ponder over the lessons there, uh, uh, there revealed, it would remind him, and was designed to remind every Jewish boy, that he was in covenant relationship with his God. It reminded him that if he was to live up to the terms of that covenant, he must cut, the flesh must be cut off. In the cutting off of flesh, he would, it would cause him to suffer pain in so doing. But as he contemplated these things that he got to suffer pain to cut off the flesh that he might walk in an acceptable relationship with his God, he would be reminded that that was performed upon him upon the eighth day of his life. A day in which he was caused to look forward to a new beginning. Not only a new beginning in his own moral life at that time, but he would be able to look forward to a new beginning upon the face of this earth. When all the population of this earth clothed with immortality would be, would be reach a superabundance of blessings from Almighty God. And he'd be able to look forward to that time, seeing that the cutting off of the flesh now and the pain inflicted thereby would be rewarded, abundantly rewarded in the, in the, in the future age. So it's interesting when we come to look at this 17th chapter of the book of Genesis, now there's many lessons taught us here in the life of Abraham concerning this aspect of circumcision. You know, in this 17th chapter at verse 1, we read, And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am Almighty God, or El Shaddai. Walk before me and be thou perfect. You know, that's the first place in the scripture we're introduced to the term Ael Shaddaiah. The strength of the, of, the, uh, of, of the mighty ones, or the, the strength of the Shaddai. And, and as we know, the Shaddai represents both destroyers and nourishers. They're destroyers and nourishers. And here with the revelation of that name, Abraham and his family are brought into covenant relationships. And they're reminded that if they break the terms of that covenant, then the Shaddai will be destroyed under them. But if they walk in the terms of that covenant, then the Shaddai will be nourished and protected of them. And so it's a little reminder that they must be mindful of the terms of that covenant. Because if they break that covenant, if they treat it lightly, if they despise that covenant, and they're in the hand of the destroyer. But if they uphold that covenant and walk in, in accordance with its principles, then they're in the hand of those who can nourish and sustain them. Now in the end of uh, chapter 17 here, we read in the, the, last, um, the verse, last two verses of the, of the chapter, or we're reading, we're reading verse 24 that Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his fortune. Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his fortune. In the self same day was Abraham circumcised as Ishmael his son. And all the men of his house, born in his house and bought with money of the stranger, were circumcised with him. It shows that the whole of that little community Abraham, his son Ishmael and all the men of his house were all circumcised at the same time. We probably can all readily remember what happened to Hamor and Shechem when the sons of Jacob made a bargain with them that they all be circumcised. And then upon the third day and as a result of that operation the men were in immobilised and incapacitated. They were incapable of defending themselves. And they went in and they slew a lot of them. 
and his Abraham and his household in a hostile territory as a stranger and a pilgrim among the Canaanites and yet he sees to it that the whole of his house is immediately circumcised at the same time. You see, it meant that he put absolute trust and confidence in the power of Ael Shaddai. He had the trust that Ael Shaddai would protect them at that time because here was that community helpless in the midst of a hostile world because they were uh, acting in obedience to the demands of Almighty God. You know, really, it's the same situation that the seed of Abraham have been in throughout all generations. We live in a hostile world. We live in a world where everything is done upon the principles of flesh. Flesh is out to get all it can, all of the time. And yet we've got to be a community in it that cut off the flesh. We've got to be a community motivated by entirely different principles where we're helpless to defend ourselves. Where are we going to put our trust? We've got to put our trust in the power of Ael Shaddai. We've got to walk in terms of the covenant in which we, into which we've been drawn, having absolute faith and confidence that the power of the nourishers will look after us and protect us in the midst of this hostile world. You see, circumcision, the cutting off of flesh, demands that. It demands that we put faith and trust in the power of Yahweh to protect and to provide. So what exactly does the cutting off of flesh involve? Well, you know, you come back to Genesis chapter 16. And here in Genesis chapter 16 we read of the circumstances that led up to the birth of Ishmael. We can understand the plight of Abraham and Sarah, or Sarai. Verse 1 reads, Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, bare him no children. And he had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And she said to Abraham, Going to, my, to Hagar, it may be that I might receive children by her. And Abraham hearkened unto her voice. You see, we, we can look at the plight that Abraham and Sarah were in. Here they've been given great and glorious promises. But all those promises depended upon the birth of a son. If that son wasn't born, the whole lot would fail. And they had no children, they were getting older and older, and no children were being produced. And here we see in chapter 16, they're coming almost to, to, to the point of desperation as to how this seed is going to be produced. And so Hagar is given to Abram as a wife, and Ishmael is produced. But you see, he wasn't, he wasn't the one through whom the seed would come, he was a, a son of the flesh. He was not the one through whom the seed would come. And so now God appears to Abraham in chapter 17 and he says, look, you cut off the flesh and I'll provide the seed. That's what Abraham had to learn. He wasn't going to be able to produce that seed by his own strength. He and Sarah weren't going to provide the promised seed by their own ingenuity and their own skill and their own devices. Those things had to be cut off. And so you see, when we talk of cutting off of flesh, it's not only a matter of cutting off unlawful lusts and desires. It certainly includes that. Certainly those things have to be cut off. But it goes far deeper than that. You see, it, has to, it goes to the very confidence that one has in themselves. So one has to come to recognise that they are absolutely powerless of their own selves to work out their own salvation. A person has to recognise that and all confidence in itself has to be cut off and confidence has to be put in Yahweh that Yahweh will do it. And you know, it's not until we get that disposition of mind that we can really put our own selves and our own abilities right out of the picture and endeavour to draw Yahweh into our lives out of the pages of his word that Yahweh might work in us that he might be the power in us that he might be the power that motivates us that makes the decisions that guides and directs us through life Abraham had to learn that 
And he learned that. When through this right of circumcision, because straight after he was circumcised, we learn of the birth of Isaac. And so Abraham had to learn the principles of that, but he did learn it because Paul tells us that circumcision was the token of the, uh, the faith and the disposition that was already uh, manifested in his heart. But of course we look to the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ was the person who perfectly fulfilled all the demands of that covenant of circumcision. He was one who cut off the flesh completely. He completely cut it off. His whole life was governed and controlled by the word of Yahweh. Every word that he spoke was his father's word. Everything that he did was his father's work. His flesh was completely cut off and then of course the circumcision was carried to its ultimate when he was crucified at the age of 33. Now in that little house at Bethlehem, that mark in the flesh was inflicted upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So that later in life, when he became aware of the, of the mark in his flesh, he would see it as the token of the covenant. It would remind him of the relationship into which he had been drawn with his Father in heaven. It would remind him of the obligations of that covenant. It would remind him that he, he must suffer pain to fulfil the things that Yahweh wants. It would remind him that he must have faith and trust in, in, in the power of his Father to protect him and to nourish him. It would remind him that it was only the power of the Father working in him, cutting off the flesh, that could um, fulfil in him the work of the Redeemer. You know, and as that little operation was carried out in the house of Bethlehem, I believe it's an operation that would have hurt Mary. No mother can see her eight-day-old son have pain inflicted, probably bloodshed, without herself being hurt. There was a little foreshadow of the way in which the whole of the life of her son was going to inflict hurt upon that mother. There was a foreshadowing of that sword that was going to pierce her own soul when her son was finally crucified and died. And so, as Mary in later life pondered these things, she would have come to realise the tremendous significance of those enactments in the early days of her beloved son. We read that at the time of the circumcising, <coughs> the child was also named. It was a Jewish custom that a child was named, <coughs> a boy that is, was named at the time that he was circumcised. You see, when we go back to Genesis chapter 17, we find that at the time of circumcision, Abraham, Abram's name was changed to Abraham. And so it, became, it was customary that upon the eighth day when the, a boy was circumcised, his name would be proclaimed. And we read here, of course, that his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. You know, it's interesting here, when in the case of this child, when we look at the combination of the circumcising and the name, because the circumcising was the token of God's covenant with the, with, with the uh, seed of Abraham. It was the token of the covenant. And the name that this child was given was, was um, uh, Yahoshua, incorporating the name of Yahweh, which according to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 15 was Yahweh's memorial. It was designed to remind people of Yahweh's purpose with his people. And here we have these two things combined in, in, on this eighth day of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. There inflicted in his flesh was the token of the Abrahamic covenant and their name upon him was a name which spoke of the memorial name of Yahweh designed to remind people of, of Yahweh's purpose with the Adamic race. And in this case, both of those things were blended together upon the eighth day of his life. Now when we come to verses 22 to 24, we find that Two things are combined in those verses. We read of two things being blended into one, as it were. 
We've got the purification of Mary on the one hand and we've got the presentation of Christ as, as, as her firstborn son on the other. They were actually two separate ceremonies under the law. And the law did not demand that they be done together at the same time. In fact, the presentation of the firstborn could have been done uh, several days earlier than the purification of Mary. But of course, in most cases, no doubt, they were done together as was on this case. Because you see, Mary was unclean. She couldn't go into the temple before the days of her purification were accomplished. And so it was the most convenient and obvious time to, to, to make the presentation of the, uh, of the newborn child, the firstborn son, make the presentation of him to Yahweh at the time of her purification. But I believe that, that relating this to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's very, very fitting that the two things were done at the same time. You see, first of all, let's just try and get an overall picture of those things that were enacted in verses 22 to 24. We find, uh, as we'll, we'll look at the details in a few moments, we just want to get the overall picture at the moment. We find that if a woman has given birth to a, a, a boy, she was, in all, she was unclean for a total of 40 days. 40 is a number which speaks of probation. At the end of that 40 days, she would present herself at the temple and offer certain sacrifices. And she would be cleansed by those sacrifices. And so, at the end of a, a period of probation, she was cleansed by sacrifice. And then, at that very same time, we find in this set of circumstances that that child was presented to Yahweh as her firstborn. I believe that all these things have relation to the life and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ was manifested in the flesh for a period of probation. He went through that probation. At the end of that probation, he offered himself as a sacrifice. And through that sacrifice, both himself and his ecclesia, which included his mother, were purified by that sacrifice. He died, but on the third day he rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven and he was presented before Yahweh as the firstborn of every creature. And you know, we have in these enactments that took place in the temple when the Lord was six weeks old, we have a foreshadowing of those very things. We have a foreshadowing that the Lord was to live a life of probation. He would die as a sacrifice at the end of that probation by means of which he would purify both himself and his ecclesia. He would rise from the dead and he would be presented to Yahweh as the firstborn of every creature. Now let's go back and let's look at the details. We have in verses 22 and 24 we have reference made to the purification of Mary. Uh, verse 22, And when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished. Uh, then it goes on to the aspect of bringing the Lord to present him. So we jump down to verse 24. So they, they cut, uh, uh, the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished. And they came to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of, the, of Yahweh, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And here reference is made to the law of Moses which demanded that, that a, a certain things be observed when a woman had born a son. And, we, and it, it is quoted there from Leviticus chapter 12. When we go back to Leviticus chapter 12, we read verses 1 and 2. And Yahweh spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a woman hath conceived seed and born a man-child, then shall she be unclean seven days, according to the days of the separation for her infirmity, shall she be unclean. And in the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. And she shall then continue in the blood of her purifying, 
three and thirty days. She shall touch no hallowed thing or coming of the sanctuary until the days of her purifying be fulfilled. And so here we, we, we have it stipulated in the law <coughs> that when a woman bore a child, and in this case the child is a boy, then she was to be unclean. Firstly, for a period of seven days, and on the eighth day the child was circumcised, and then counting from that eighth day, another 33 days, making a total of 40, was that woman unclean. She was to touch nothing holy, she could not come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying were fulfilled. She was unclean, not because she had sinned. The act of bearing a child wasn't a sin. In fact, Yahweh in the very beginning had commanded the man and the woman to be fruitful and replenish, uh, multiply and replenish the earth. So in no way was it a sin for a woman to give birth to a child. Why then was the woman unclean? I believe the Lord made her unclean to impress the uncleanness of human nature. How can, a clean, how can a clean thing come out of, out of an unclean, said Job. And I believe this law was designed to impress the uncleanness of human nature. And that human nature is in need of purifying. And so this law was instituted to teach those lessons. We find that the very, we find in verse 3, that from the, from the birth of the child to the time when she could once again enter into the worship of Yahweh, the very first step to that cleansing was the circumcising of that child upon the eighth day. The cutting off of flesh was the first step to the purifying from that uncleanness. Having made that first step, she then had to continue a further 33 days in her uncleanness. Now in the law of Moses, Brother Robert Roberts raises a very interesting question. Brother Roberts, where he presents this, he's not in any way uh, being dogmatic or insistent upon the application of the type, but he raises the question, is there a type here in this 33 days? We refer you to the second quotation on the sheet from the law of Moses, page 247. And there Brother Robert says, the woman was to continue in the blood of her purifying three and thirty days, during which she was to touch no hallowed thing nor come near the sanctuary. On the thirty-fourth day she was to offer a lamb of the first year for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or turtle dove for a sin offering. And she was to stand cleansed from the issue of her blood. Was this an intimation that he upon whom the Lord laid the iniquities of us all, and therefore as representing us all, should be in the unclean state for 33 whole years, and in the 34th be cleansed by the offering up of himself in the first year of his new state as both the offered land and the offering priest. And you'll find there, if you read through a couple of pages of the Law of Moses, uh, 247 on probably to about 248, 249, You'll see how Brother Robert presents this, uh, this suggestion is presented in the law of Moses. Actually, Brother Robert's quote from a, a letter that another brother had sent to him, uh, suggesting these types. But, uh, but we find that the 33 days here and the 33 years of the Lord's life is a very interesting uh, comparison. Is it merely coincidence? Or was the law indicating that which Brother Thomas, Brother Robert suggests? Is it merely coincidence? Or was the law indicating that which Brother Thomas, Brother Robert suggests? Indicating that the Lord Jesus Christ was to live his life uh, in the unclean state for 33 years and then by offering the sacrifice of himself to cleanse himself and his ecclesia. In the case of a girl, if a, if a woman gave birth to a girl, we find, if we go on through the verses of Leviticus chapter 12, we find that the times were doubled. The initial uncleanness, instead of going to the, uh, uh, to the, to the eighth day, of lasting seven days and going to the eighth day, was doubled. It was to be two weeks, be 14 days. 
14 initial days and then there were to be 66 days of uncleanness before the mother uh, was purified from that uncleanness. You see, it's interesting when we look at the two things here. In the boy, we have a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the girl, we have a foreshadowing of the bride. Now the Lord Jesus Christ was born with an unclean nature. He was born with human nature such as we have. And it took 33 days or 33 years for the purification of that nature to be accomplished. But you see, when we look at the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, of which we ourselves hope to be part, we find that there is a difference. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ bore human nature. He he bore a, a nature that was physically unclean. But he never ever committed an act of sin. As our brother chairman uh, made reference in his prayer, it's a very rare thing. It is indeed a rare thing. It's a thing that's hard to comprehend. But here was a man bearing human nature the same as us. And he went through his life never committing an act of sin. Never thinking an unclean thought. Never committing an act of sin. And so he had to be cleansed of that nature but he had nothing else to be cleansed of. But when we look at his bride, as we well know of ourselves, we've got an unclean nature. But we've also, we're also uh, unclean from the act that we've committed, acts of sin. That we've thought thoughts of uncleanness uh, and committed acts of sin. We've got to be cleansed not only from the nature that we bear, we've got to be cleansed from the transgressions that we've committed and continue to commit. And so you see, it took twice as long for the cleansing of a girl as it did for a boy. Foreshadowing, I believe, the fact that it would be a lot harder to cleanse the bride than it is to cleanse the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in the case of the boy, the initial uncleanness was for seven days and on the eighth day... Uh, uh, um, the, the, the child was circumcised the flesh was cut off in the case of the, of, the, of the girl the time was doubled it was 14 days for that initial uncleanness you see the Lord Jesus Christ was born of the flesh his flesh had to be cut off you know a flesh that has never ever indulged in sin flesh that has never committed any sin is a lot easier to cut off than flesh in which unclean habits have been developed and, and, and wrong, wrong ways and unclean habits have been developed. It's twice as hard to cut off flesh like that than it is to cut off flesh that's never ever been able to raise its head. And so you see, these things are foreshadowed in that 12th chapter of the book of Leviticus. Now when we come to verses 6 and verse 8 of, uh, of this 12th chapter, we read of those offerings that, that, that were, were, we read of there in Luke that Mary came to offer. Verse 6, And when the days of her purifying are fulfilled for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring a lamb of the first year for a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation under the priest. Uh, verse, um, oh, we're reading verse 7. Who shall offer it before Yahweh and make an atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the issue of her blood. This is the law for her that is born a male or a female. And if she be not able to bring a lamb, then, then she shall bring two turtles or two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering and the priest shall make an atonement for her and she shall be clean. And so at the fulfilment of these days the woman had to make offerings at the tabernacle or later times the temple. Now these sacrifices of course like all the sacrifices did pointed forward to the redeemer that would come. Pointed forward to the promised seed of the woman. In the first of Timothy, <coughs> chapter 2 and verse 15, 
We read, we read verse 14, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved through the childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. And it points forward to the fact that the Ecclesia is going to be saved through the childbearing. And that childbearing was foreshadowed in the offerings that were made for the cleansing of a mother who had just given birth to a child. And those offerings were a foreshadowing of the childbearing, the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would ultimately come and be offered as a sacrifice through whom uh, Eve and, and, and the whole of the ecclesia would ultimately be cleansed. And so those offerings point forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's very interesting to note there that, that in the order that those offerings were presented, it was, an, it was a departure from the normal order of the offering of offerings. Under normal circumstances, a sin offering would always proceed a burnt offering. Because, you see, atonement or forgiveness of sins is our first requirement before we can dedicate ourselves to the service of our God. And so if an ordinary person, if you or I, living under that dispensation, were under circumstances where we had to offer a burnt offering and a sin offering, we would always come with the sin offering first. Because we, could have, we would have to approach under Yahweh, we would have to confess our sins, we would have to seek forgiveness for our sins, and then we would pledge rededication to the service of God. It's the only way it could be done. You couldn't come and dedicate yourself to God and then seek forgiveness of sins afterwards. And so the normal procedure always was the offering of the sin offering first and the burnt offering second. But in that 12th chapter of Leviticus, a woman having given birth to a child offered a burnt offering first and a sin offering second. Not only that, under the normal set of circumstances, she offered a lamb for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. So that the emphasis was placed upon the burnt offering being the bigger, more valuable animal. You see, those things were pointing forward to the seed of the woman. A man, a child who would be born, who would totally dedicate himself to God as a burnt offering in his life. And because of his perfect life would die as a sin offering. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ had to offer a burnt offering first. He had to live a perfect life or he could have been no sin offering. If the Lord Jesus Christ hadn't been the burnt offering first, there would never have been a sin offering. And that was foreshadowed there in the cleansing of the woman who had just born a child. was pointing forward that Yahweh from the woman's seed would produce a perfect man. A man who would be totally dedicated to Yahweh as a burnt offering. And in so giving his perfect life to God would provide a sin offering for those who fall short. And so we see that the, the, the things that Mary offered upon that day were a very beautiful foreshadowing concerning the things that were to be accomplished in her own son. You know, in Mary's case, as we learn there from Luke chapter 2, Mary had to resort to the allowable alternative to a lamb. She offered two turtle doves, or two young pigeons. That was allowed in cases of poverty. Where a person couldn't afford a lamb, Yahweh was happy to accept a pigeon. What an astounding thing it is, brethren and sisters. But here was the birth of the seed of the woman. Here was the birth that throughout all their generations those sacrifices have been pointing forward to. And it was the offering of poverty. It's possible, we, we can't say it was, but it's possible that upon that day in the temple Mary's offerings were the smallest ones offered. What a lesson there is in that. What a lesson there is in that. I wonder how many people had gone to that temple for the birth of a child and they'd taken the biggest and the best sacrifice they could find thinking that that would impress Yahweh. But here when the seed of the woman 
when the perfect man is born, it's the smallest, most insignificant sacrifice that he's offered. Because you see, really, it wasn't the animal that Yahweh was interested in at all. What Yahweh wanted to see was those lessons instilled in that young child. And here was a child who was going to grow up. And as he came to grow up and to ponder over the things that had been done at his birth, he was one who would see those lessons, he would accept them, and he would put them into practice in his life. And there, upon that day, these tiny offerings were offered as this child was presented, as his mother was purified, and the child came to be presented before Yahweh. Surely it indicates, brethren and sisters, that what Yahweh really wants is the heart. He doesn't, it, all a person's possessions would be of no use whatever unless a person is prepared to give their life and to give their heart unto him. And here was a young child that was going to do that in later life. Going to give his heart and, and, and give everything that he had to his God. And so Yahweh was quite happy to accept from that mother the smallest of those sacrifices. Now incorporated in with the purification of Mary was the presentation of the Lord unto Yahweh. We read at the end of verse 22 of Luke chapter 2 that they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of Yahweh every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy unto Yahweh. So here again we see that things were done in accordance with that which was written in the law of Yahweh. And we find that that 23rd verse there is quoted from Exodus chapter 13. And there in Exodus chapter 13 we read certain things concerning the firstborn. Firstly, reading verses 1 and 2. And Yahweh spake unto Moses, saying, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn, Whatsoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast, it is mine. So Yahweh claimed the firstborn as his. We jump down to verses 11 to 16. And we read, And it shall be when Yahweh shall bring thee into the land of the Canaanites, as he swear unto thee, and to thy fathers, and shall give it thee, that thou shalt set apart unto Yahweh all that openeth the matrix, and every firstling that cometh of beast which thou, thou hast, the males shall be Yahweh's. And every firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb, and if thou wilt not redeem it, then thou shalt break his neck, and all the firstborn of man among thy children shalt thou redeem. And it shall be when thy son asketh thee in time to come, say, What is this? That thou shalt say unto him, by strength of hand, Yahweh brought us out from Egypt from the house of bondage. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh would hardly let us go, that Yahweh slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to Yahweh all that openeth the matrix, being males, but all the firstborn of my children I redeem. And it shall be for a token upon thine hand and for frontlets between thine eyes. For by strength of hand, Yahweh brought us forth out of Egypt. You see, there's the grounds upon which Yahweh claimed all the firstborn as his, because he'd redeemed that nation out of Egypt. And upon the very night that he brought them out, he'd smitten all the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast. Because as we know, the firstborn of Israel were redeemed by the blood of the Passover land. But yet in memorial of those things, Yahweh claimed all the firstborn as his. And it was designed to perpetuate the memory of the Exodus. Now in Numbers chapter 3 and verse 13, we find uh, these things set before us also. Numbers 3 and verse 13. Uh, because, well, we're reading from verse 12 to get the context, and I, behold, I have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel instead of all the firstborn that openeth the matrix among the children of Israel, 
Therefore the Levites shall be mine. Because all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I hallowed unto me all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast. They, sh- uh, they should, uh, mine shall they be. I am Yahweh. And so again we find that Yahweh instills upon them that all the firstborn of man and beast belong unto Yahweh because he took the, the family of the Levites and the people were to, were to redeem their firstborn son. Now in Deuteronomy 15 verses 19 to 21 again we read words um, relevant to this aspect of the firstborn. Deuteronomy 15 verses 19 to 21 All the firstling males that come of thy herd and of thy flock thou shalt sanctify unto Yahweh thy Elohim. Thou shalt do no work with the firstling of thy bullock nor shear the firstling of thy sheep. Thou shalt eat it before Yahweh thy Elohim year by year in the place which Yahweh shall choose thou and thy household. If there be any blemish therein as if it be lame or blind or have any ill blemish thou shalt not sacrifice it unto Yahweh thy Elohim thou shalt eat it within thy gates. The unclean and the clean person shall eat in the light of the roebuck and of the heart. And so the firstling of their herd or their flock uh, either had to be offered as a sacrifice before Yahweh or if it had a blemish it had to be killed and eaten. They were not allowed to use it to their own use. At this stage, perhaps I'll direct your attention to the third quotation that we have upon the sheet, a quotation from the Law and Grace, uh, page 44. And there Brother Barling writes, Here was one of the earliest of that whole series of ritual devices which the law adopted to bring home to Israel the moral and spiritual significance of the Exodus. None was better suited to its purpose. For those so simple, it was wonderfully flexible and adaptable. Its basic lesson was that, having been redeemed by God, they were no longer their own, but had become exclusively God. All the firstborn are mine. For on the day that I smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I hallowed unto me all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast. Mine shall they be. I am Yahweh. The allegory interpreted itself. As a redeemed person, the Israelite had to regard himself as utterly beholden to God. A later ordinance was designed to reinforce that lesson in in an emphatic way. Of the animals thus made over to God, it was stipulated, Thou shalt do no work with the firstling of thy bullock, nor shear the firstling of thy sheep. The moral was plain. God and man were not to share these animals. They were holy gods as objective representations of each Israelite individually and of Israel as a whole, they taught that the redeemed of the Lord had to devote themselves in total dedication to him. Their calling demanded no less. You see the lessons that Brother Barling impresses upon us here. The fact that the firstborn were Yahweh indicating it reminded them that they belonged under Yahweh. You see, the lesson really was very powerful because Israel was God's firstborn nation. Israel as a nation were God's firstborn and therefore they belonged to Yahweh and they owed themselves under Yahweh. You know, when they had a bullock, they were told of the first thing of God's bullock you will do no work with it. That was God's bullet. I must not use it in service to myself. If I had a sheep, the law said you will not shear the first thing of your sheep. That's God's sheep. You will not use the wool of that sheep for yourself. It belongs unto God. If you're a firstborn son, you belong unto God. I will not render my work in service to myself. I belong to God. 
That was the lesson that Yahweh was trying to bring home. And Israel was that firstborn nation. He was trying to impress upon them that they were his. They were not to render their lives in service to themselves. It had to be given in service, in loving, devoted, dedicated service to their God. The Lord Jesus Christ was a firstborn son. He was part of that firstborn nation. He recognised the lessons that Yahweh was trying to teach and he gave himself totally unto his Father. Now in the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews, the Apostle Paul brings out that we are the firstborn of a new creation. We're the firstborns of a new creation and therefore we belong unto God. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 23 To the general assembly and ecclesia of the firstborn should be plural which are written in heaven. The ecclesia of the firstborn we're the firstborn of a new creation and therefore we belong unto God and we owe our lives, our strength, our minds, our hearts, we owe them in dedicated service unto our God. When the Lord Jesus Christ was presented at the temple, um, as we learn from Numbers chapter 18 and verse 16, he had to be redeemed by a payment of silver. Numbers chapter 18 and verse 16. Well, reading from verse 15, Everything that openeth the matrix in all flesh which they shall bring unto Yahweh, whether it be of men or of beasts, shall be thine. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man shalt thou surely redeem, and the firstling of unclean beasts shalt thou redeem. And those that are to be redeemed from a month old, this was a time when the firstborn could have been presented, but he wasn't, the case of the Lord wasn't presented until later. From those that are a month old shalt thou redeem according to thine estimation for the money of five shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary, which is twenty giraffes. Five shekels of silver had to be paid for the redemption of a firstborn son. And that was in memory of the redemption that, that, that the firstborn had received at the time of the exodus. But that redemption, of course, was through the blood of the Passover lamb. He had to pay five shekels of silver because silver <laughs> always speaks of redemption and five, of course, is the number of grace. And he had to acknowledge the grace of Yahweh in redeeming, his, redeeming that nation out of Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb. And so when Mary came to the temple to present the Lord before Yahweh, she would pay that five shekels of silver at the time when he was presented. An acknowledgement of the grace of Yahweh and an acknowledgement of the redemption that was going to be accomplished through that young child that she was presenting. When she presented him before the priest, the custom of the day says that the priest would pronounce two benedictions over that child. One benediction, Edeshine tells us, was for the happy and joyous occasion that a son had been born and the other was in reference to the law of redemption. It was a ritual that probably the priest went through many times a day. We can imagine the priest there, he would view this child as no different to any other child. Probably he pronounced that benediction in a very formal and rather disinterested manner. He performed his duty, the duty he had to, be, had to perform. But if only he had known, if he had known the manner of child that was before him at that particular time, I wonder what his thoughts would have gone through his mind. You know, when the Lord was presented at the temple, benedictions were pronounced over him, but not by the presiding priest. We read in verse 25 for instance And behold there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and the same man was just and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Benedictions were pronounced over the Lord but not by, faith, not by the faith this priesthood of that day. 
There were faithful people in that temple to whom it was revealed by the Holy Spirit that that child just presented before Yahweh was indeed the Son of God, was indeed the Messiah of Israel. And we can imagine uh, the, the feelings of Simeon as he's impelled by the Holy Spirit to the temple upon that time as he holds that young child in his arms. Uh, Melva purpose in the life of Jesus perhaps paints a little picture for us of those circumstances and upon that last quotation upon the sheet before us we read Simeon was an upright and a godly man who studied the law and the prophets he realised the significance of the days in which he lived and had been rewarded by the knowledge given to him through the Holy Spirit that before his eyes closed in the sleep of death he would see the Messiah. With what trembling anticipation would he make his way through the crowded streets toward the temple, impelled by the urge of the Spirit of God. There would be no doubt in his mind that God's promise was about to be fulfilled. With deep exaltation of spirit, he lifted the helpless babe to his breast and holding the Lord of life against his heart, he uttered memorial words. Simeon was content now to pass quietly from the scene. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And so we see that dramatic events took place at the time of the presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ before Yahweh. But there we will have to leave our class for the night and we will consider Simeon and Anna in more detail, God willing, at our next class.